Mosaic. My name is Sharon, and today I will be reading from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 in Chinese. Babylon, Dying 像人一样双脚站在地上，并被扶于人的头脑。第二只兽像熊，用两只后腿站立，牙尖叼着三根肋骨，有声音对他说：“起来，多吞吃肉吧。”此后我继续观看，便还有一只像豹一样的兽。背上有四只乳鸟一般的翅膀，这兽有四个头，并被扶于官兵。此后我在夜间的异象中看见第四只兽，恐怖可怕，极其强壮，用大铁牙吞吃，咬碎猎猎物，用脚尖它所生的。这
We're going to look at it. The beasts, the brute, the boast. Let me say that again. The beasts, the brute, and the boast. As I said from chapter 7 onward in the book of Daniel, everything changes. I mean, up until now, we're dealing with king's dreams, but now Daniel's in a dream. We also have time travel back in time to when Belshazzar was king, and so this passage chronologically happens between chapters 4 and 5, as it's in the first year of the king's reign. But the biggest shift that happens is when the style of the writing changes. Daniel 7 shifts from a narrative history style storytelling to this apocalyptic genre. And to understand any writing, we need to understand its purpose. You know, genres help us understand the purpose. And so, for example, we just instinctively know that a sentence that begins with, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood, probably does not end with, and the rest of the country had partly cloudy with scattered showers, right? Like, one is apocalyptic, the other is a weather forecast, And so that means that to understand apocalyptic literature, we need to know what it is trying to do to us and for us. And so apocalyptic literature is like this author trying to to write with a paintbrush. Like You can't interpret things literally with a paintbrush. It's as if you were to walk into an art gallery with these these frightening images and you walk out going, oh, that makes sense. No, it absolutely does not make sense, which is why of the five commentaries I read leading up to this, none of them agree on what the beasts actually are. But that's exactly what people try to do with this stuff. This book and and the book of Revelation are the two books that that seem to, to characterize apocalyptic writing the best. And the problem that we always run into when reading the book of Revelation in these last couple chapters of the book of Daniel is when we try to read Revelation in these these chapters of Daniel, literally. The apocalypse appeals to our senses. Like we're meant to see, we're meant to hear, we're meant to smell these strange beasts. Not, Not prognosticate about the end of the world. Like when you go down that route, that's when you get people predicting the world's gonna end in 1982, which they did. And then in 1994, which they did. Then in year 2000, and then too many other dates. I mean, there was one man, Harold Camping, predicted that the world would end three times in one year. And I don't know if you know, but that did not, in fact, happen. And you would think the fact that it did not happen would have had him reconsider his giftings, that he might not be able to do this. But guess what? That didn't stop him. He predicts the end of the world a year later. (laughs) And again, it did not happen. So you just, you got to love that guy's perseverance. (laughs) No, like this seems silly because we're not meant to read these books literally, but we're meant to be overwhelmed, as Daniel was, by the revelation of the Ancient of Days and of the coming of the Son of Man. And so let's look at the beasts in this vision. Verse 2 says, Behold, the four winds of heaven were being stirred up out of the great sea. And now numbers are important in apocalyptic literature. They they have symbolism. So number four symbolizes the four points of a compass, meaning every possible wind and direction. And it's this, this symbol of completeness. So the whole earth was stirring up something monstrous. And for the ancients, the, the sea was a place that the Leviathan and, and other creatures lived. And then verse 3, And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, and a different from one another. And these monsters were, were terrifying. They're not merely you know, terrifying like you think of like, uh, and because they're dangerous, like the crocodile or the T-Rex. Rather, they're terrifying because they're evil and opposed to God. That these are agents of chaos and destruction. This is not PG-13 Jurassic Park-like, 
but it's R-rated the nun or the scary clown from it. Like these monsters are pure evil. And so the first beast in verse four is like a lion with eagle's wings. Now excuse the terrible pictures that we have up here. Um, I'm not sure if these will help or make things worse. Um, but it, they make you think of, of, of these terrible beasts, but then you hear of, of a lion with wings and you think, okay, that doesn't sound too bad. But then as I looked, it says, its wings were plucked off. Well, that was a little off-putting. They're just tearing someone's wings off. Then the second beast was like a bear, but it was raised up on one side. And whether that's because he was poised to spring or because he was grotesquely deformed like the hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, we don't know. It, it, had a, it had a mouth full of ribs of its previous victim, but yet it was told to rise and devour some more. Okay, that's getting darker. All right, the third beast in verse 6 is part leopard, part bird with four heads. Now, tell me if this does not sound like the animal that you made up in kindergarten. So, you know, like, all right, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a leopard, get that? And it's going to be a bird, and it's going to have four heads. And his name is Carl. But, but why is Carl built this way? Because it's emphasizing the speed and the ferocity at which Carl moves, and because he's impossible to hide from. But the things get really hideous with the fourth beast in verse 7. And terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. And so this beast is different. It's incredibly strong. It has iron teeth. It has ten horns. And the horns are symbols of strength in the Bible. And so that ten, though, symbolizes this massively multiplied strength. But then there's a little baby horn that springs up. And at first you're like, oh, that's so cute, a little baby horn. Oh, it's so cute. But no, it's frightening. <laughs> its horn had eyes like a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. <sighs> like, please excuse these terrible renditions of these pictures. These are terrible. Like, <laughs> but I believe what Daniel saw was far more disturbing. And so it's no wonder Daniel wasn't scared of the lion's den when he was desensitized by all these night terrors of visions of horror movies like Hereditary and such. Like, this monstrosity makes those lions appear like the cat from Puss in Boots. Good kitty. He's so adorable, right? <laughs> but what are we to do with these beasts? The response is we only read these verses 1 through 8 should be, what did I just see? <laughs> like, what was that? And you know, that's the same response many have after watching the Dallas Cowboys play this thing, this game called football. But we don't have to worry about what trying to figure out what these beasts actually are or what they're doing because the beast is the brute. Later in this passage, we're told explicitly in verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And these beasts represent kings and their kingdoms in which we live. And so the vision declares that our world is being run by a succession of fearsome monsters that will go from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the other. And these kings and their kingdoms are so bad that they're depicted by horrific beasts and they're led by a brute, which if you Google that word, the description literally reads a savagely violent person or animal. Oh, that seems about very appropriate. <laughs> well, that is just lovely, isn't it? Like Daniel is a little more reserved than I am. He says in verse 15 after seeing this, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I think that was just his cleaned up version of his panic attack, you know, breathing into a paper bag, uh, eating all the kids' Halloween candy. You know, like, this is alarming. <laughs> what he just heard and what you and I just heard are that the, the world governments are evil kingdoms. And if you think things are bad under the Babylonians, just wait, it's going to get worse. Oh, fantastic. 
Like, so this isn't the health and wealth gospel, is it? That everything is just going to work out splendidly. Oh, well, if you think so, well, Kenneth Copeland has a word for you. <laughs> the temptation that every person has is to want to identify which four earthly kingdoms match up with the beast. And so especially since the first beast is clearly Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the lion and the eagle are both used by Jeremiah in a description of Nebuchadnezzar, which is just spot on because Nebuchadnezzar literally thought he was a beast, but then he praised God and his mind returned to him. And it says in verse four, and the mind of a man was given to it. And so nearly everyone believes at least this first beast does represent Babylon. And if that's Babylon... What superpowers come after Babylon? And, and who do we identify these beasts with, with? And so now, as I said, not many agree on this, but a common understanding of the order is Babylon with the lion uh, and eagle. We'll call it illegal. Um, and then the Medo-Persian empire with the creepy bear, and then Greece with Carl the leopard and its wings because the speed at which Alexander the Great conquered. Uh, and then the fourth beast is Rome. Again, guesses which would be nice and lovely just to have this all neatly wrapped up in a bow. Well done, good job. We can all rest easy since those beasts are no longer around here today. We're good. But these attributes of speed and ferocity and brutality apply equally well to something like Nazi Germany and many other warlike nations before and after them. Notice the angel doesn't clarify the identity of the kingdoms. He could have just easily told Daniel who is coming, but he doesn't. And so a proper understanding of the vision does not resolve in the question of who did it. It's not the game of Clue. In fact, I would go as far to argue that any attempt to identify the various beasts actually direct us away from the proper interpretation of the vision. And so such approaches assume that the rule of the beast describes the way that the world used to be up until someone like Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a truly an abomination, uh, who sacrificed a pig in God's holy altar and was literally burning Bibles. But even though Antiochus is terrible, seeing this Daniel passage as solely relating to kings and kingdoms in the past assumes that things are supposedly different and less beastly today. But then we can think of the Cambodian killing fields and the genocide in Rwanda. Or maybe we could even think, look more inward and see the myriad of ways that the United States has legally killed and murdered and abused and demeaned all types of human beings. Specifically, the Native Americans when the settlers first came here. So, happy Thanksgiving. And, and then they needed labor for all the cotton fields and partook in the transatlantic slave trade. But just when we were tempted to think, well, that was then. I'm so glad we've moved far beyond that. Then just look at all the abuse that has happened in the year 2020. We can look at all the ugly ways that we treat human beings, particularly the most vulnerable, whether that's the sheer fact that we have to say Black Lives Matter, or whether that's the elderly in regards to this virus, or it's the rhetoric of our elected officials. This past year alone, I've, I've heard so many people say, I thought we were better than this. No, we're not. We're not better. This is our past, but this is also our present. And this is the moral of Daniel 7. Just when you think, if we can just get past this king, if we can just outlive this monstrosity, another king is going to rise up behind it and they'll just keep spouting up. This is also our future. The identification of the beast as four past empires is the exact opposite of the message of the apocalyptic literature. For apocalyptic writers, nothing less than the beginning of a new age can change this world. And until then, the darkness will not lift significantly. 
The fact that there are four beasts represents completeness rather than a particular number of world empires. And on such view, this message of Daniel 7 is that life in the present age will always be this way until the end of age. I mean, it's, a, it's striking if you look at that, that superpowers of our day still represent themselves by these predatory animals, such as like the Russian bear or the American eagle. Though Benjamin Franklin argued we should change our national animal to a turkey, but that idea didn't seem to get much movement. I wonder why. Uh, but the point is, the beasts may change their shape as the centuries pass, but their violence and lust for power continues. Nebuchadnezzar turns into Darius, who becomes Alexander the Great, and then Antiochus Epiphanes, and then Nero, and Domitian, and Hitler, and Stalin, and, and who today? Now, we live in America, and we're, in a, we're very, in, a, in a very peculiar position. Like, in that day, Jews or Christians had little to no direct influence in their community's political process. But you and I today wield significant power in ours. And if we want to know how to, to seek the welfare of the community, how to care for the most vulnerable or love our neighbor, I mean, it happens through voting and lobbying and marching in protests. And so in some sense, like we're all freaked out by these evil monsters and, that represent these kingdoms and authorities. But it should be noted that we sit in a position of authority in our government. Like we have all the more reason to heed this passage because we can easily become beastly in the way that we rule. To avoid or dismiss political engagement is to forgo an important responsibility to love our neighbors and to promote the, the righteousness and justice that are the foundation of God's throne. And to simply just stay out of it means we're forfeiting the duty to push back against evil and we let the beast have his day. We live in a world where, where there is good reason to have trouble sleeping at night. But what's more frightening than realizing you may be the beast? But the focus of this chapter is not on the beast, nor on the brute, but it's on the boast of the Almighty. Like, this passage is not here to give us more nightmares, thank you, but to calm our nightmares. The focus of Daniel 7 is on the surety and the certainty and the guarantee of the final victory of the saints. Like, this is the boast that no matter how evil these kingdoms may become, there will be justice and God will win the final victory. Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. The Ancient of Days. I mean, what a name. Like, one who took his seat amid this chaos, meaning he's not pacing around fearfully worried. He sits because it's all under control. And his clothing was white as snow and hair like pure wool, revealing his purity. And the throne had flames with wheels of burning fire. Makes you think of Moses, the burning bush. God the Father is the Ancient of Days. And then in verse 11, And as I looked, the, I saw the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to the berry with fire. And then comes verse 13, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I mean, do you hear the hope in that? The beast will have its day, but there is an ancient of days who will outlive, outlast, and outcrush these monsters fast. Like, the angel is not fixed on the identity of the beast, but on the certainty of the final victory of the saints. It's in this picture that we had all these beasts, that the beasts are really just the mere backdrops 
to these two main characters that are right here. The Ancient of Days, who gives true dominion to this man who rides on the clouds. And only God rides on clouds. And this man is referred to as the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite term to refer to himself. Jesus is both Son of God and Son of Man. He is the mediator between God and man. And so that all peoples of all nations, of all languages, this global kingdom will worship him. I mean, this is apocalypse now. We like to think of prophets foretelling of some things that happen in the future. But, but lots of what the prophets do is not just foretelling, but, but forthtelling, Revealing the true nature of things as they are now. Revealing what the word revealing there is, is what the word apocalypse actually means. It's the great reveal, the, the pulling back of the curtain. It's as if Daniel is taking us into the upside down world of the kingdom that, that behind all these evil kingdoms are evil forces. But behind and over them are all these legions of angels and the king of the angelic armies, Jesus himself. Daniel 7 is urging us to see the two kingdoms always present with us. And if we think these beasts are frightening, what do we do with the one who could just finger snap them all away? <laughs> the beasts only have a limited amount of time. It says a time and a season but one day, someday, God will end it. The Son of Man has all authority and power, and we are rightly, like, are we rightly afraid of standing on the wrong side of that king? True world dominion belongs exclusively to God, and all others who seek it will be cut short in their path. And this is good news for the oppressed. Apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology of hope to those whom the world is marginalized. It reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. Though propagandists proclaim that the resistance is futile, the apocalyptic writer refuses to be assimilated into this world's way of thinking. And the good news, the good news doesn't just stop at the kingship of Jesus. The good news is also that the Son of Man doesn't use his political power to squash his people, but to love and to serve them. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, if that's shocking, it should be. A king who says, not that you serve me, but I serve you is wild. But then to give his life as a ransom or to pay for you, it's, it's almost too good to be true. I mean, Eugene Peterson says it this way, the son of man has dinner with the prostitute, stops off for lunch with the tax collector, Wastes time blessing children, heals unimportant losers, ignores high-achieving Pharisees and influential Sadducees, and ultimately, he hung and was pierced and was bleeding on a cross and died and was buried. Surely this is the, the most ungodlike acts of all time. But it's by this grace that we see an even more beautiful king that we can't even fathom. That you... That the Son of Man who rides clouds would die for you, would die for me. Like, that should give me all the hope in the world. Like, this is the true mixtape of God's love for you. That the Son of Man who rides clouds serves you and dies for you. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Hear this love song being played out for you. This is the mixtape of God's love for you. We invite you to listen to it, what he's doing for you. We invite you into his presence now. Let's pray. 